I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. You see, we've, we've already driven them into a frenzy. I know. It's going to get so hot. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is my only my um, second event in London with um, anything having to do with my work. So um, I'm a bit nervous, but you'll take care of me. It's all on you. (laughs) But thank you, thank you, you and thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you for coming to be with all of us. I think I speak as a fan, like I'm assuming everyone else in the room is. And it's always lovely when you know we get. Uh, people like you coming across the pond to visit us on this little rainy old island. Yes. Um, not raining today. Oh, not much. Yeah. So <laughs> it's fine. Uh, White Girls. The yes. book, this is my slightly battered copy. Sorry. I real I was on my way here and I was like, oh god. But it adds character, right? Maybe I just maybe I just like stop like stood on it before I got here, perhaps yeah. to to give the illusion that I've read it lots of times. But I have, um, and it's a beautiful piece of work oh thank you yeah, so much it, it dips and weaves those of you who haven't read it I really do recommend uh, buying it and getting it and reading it twice three times four times there's so much and I feel like today I finished my second reread and I just had all these threads flying in the air um, I think one of the threads that was the mo- the biggest straight away was the number of times you mentioned Europe in the book mm. and what Europe means and that was really interesting obviously as a European as a British person as a black British person as well those two identities sort of coming in uh, I think I'll try and find it there's a bit where you talk about Americans uh, Americans distrust knowledge if it is presented as empirical a fear of the European mm-hmm. um, and I really found that quite funny obviously because in Britain we're having our own reckoning with European identity at the moment the old, sorry for starting with this but Brexit mm-hmm. um, and yeah I was wondering if you were following that are you, are you keeping an eye on how we're getting on with that over here um, I've been so distracted by the idiocy of my own country that... Fair. I have time for it. I'm just sort of trying to understand um, the ways in which empire um, is being acted out. And I think um, where American imperialism um, sort of likes to declare itself um, loudly... Um, there has, I think it's more difficult for Americans to understand Brexit in terms of the subtleties of class and um, class division. 
And so going back, um, I've had to really sort of read um, to understand the ways in which the country has been really fractured by this principal issue of class, which has always been there as an issue, but um, to see it to see it acted out and to see activism happen because of it, you know, it's good and bad, right? Um, activism is always something that is very positive and moves things forward, whereas I think in my own country, I don't feel the horizon. I don't see the horizon because of activism, but I'm very happy that kids are walking out of school um, because of gun control. I'm very happy that women are taking care of each other, um, that they're not divided by the need to please patriarchy, but each other. Um, I think those complicated issues have come about um, in very uncomfortable but necessary ways. So I wouldn't feel entirely com comfortable um, commenting on, on Brexit because I don't really understand enough about class, which is an American ignorance. Um, that gets acted on in different ways in America. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking very briefly downstairs mm. um, about that relationship between race and class, which is something else that keeps on coming up in the book, mm. in White Girls. Uh, something that I found really refreshing, I, I think, in Britain, we find it really difficult uh, not just to speak about class, and we also often find it near on impossible to relate race to class, mm -hmm. when in fact they are, in my opinion, uh, they are almost inextricable. I think mm -hmm. I didn't really read much about the relationship between race and class, if anything, until maybe in the last year or two, mm -hmm. when s slowly the odd, I mean, uh, Rennie Edo Lodge, she's, she's, she wrote a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Mm -hmm. um, and she has a whole section called Race and Class, which is brilliant. I, I recommend buying that book uh, and, and reading that section in particular. But yeah, in Britain, we, we really find it difficult to remember that most people of colour are working class in mm -hmm. this country. Country. And so pitting them against the white working class, which is a phrase, funnily, that you, the Americans, have started using more and more. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I liked about Rennie's book is she looks up one of the roots of that phrase, white working class. And she says that one of the people who started using it a lot was this uh, guy who ran a, um, ran, his name is Tommy Robinson. And he's like a, how to describe like a, n not, not quite neo-Nazi, mm -hmm. but a, a minor fascist that's mm -hmm. been in Britain for I a while. I love that British phrasing. Right? Is that, that, that a good description? That was a brilliant, that was brilliant British phrasing. Not quite a Nazi, it's sort of a fascist, really. Oh. <laughs> Is that, is it, I don't know if anyone can say you better. can say a pig. It's a okay. Pig. A pig is much better. Yeah. But like a and he he position he put himself as this representative of the the you know white British mm -hmm. ma male working class that is you know mm -hmm. put aside for diversity all the time for years and he was using that phrase along with uh, Nigel Farage who uh, ran the UK Independence mm -hmm. Party and engineered Brexit and they were using this phrase for so long and now it's just in popular lexicon. But yeah, it's been yeah. really interesting to see the Americans. In the way, in the well, I mean, that's a sort of, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, the, what that goes back to really is um, 1930s, 1930s kind of um, agrarian culture. And Huey Long was this man who promised a chicken in every pot. And it was a sort of same um, rhetoric um, that was being used about 80 years ago, applied to the working class um, politicians who were appealing to the working class. So that Huey Long, for instance, was a very sort of not FDR 
person. FDR was about a kind of democracy or democratic point of view, whereas this was aimed specifically at Rep the new Republican Party and this class of people. So I feel that it's everything that is happening now is retrograde, but since Americans are impatient with history, no one remembers that this has happened before and it will probably happen again. Um, I think that the book um, was not so general an issue as race and class. I think that what happens with the characters in the book is that they come up against certain limitations because of their culture and because of the politics of their culture. So I was interested mostly in how these people existed in the world um, of their own making sometimes, or sometimes um, a world that had been imposed on them. Um, for instance, um, one of the sections is about Malcolm X's mother, and in the autobiography of Malcolm X, I don't know if that's required reading here, but at that these years ago, it was required reading in, in America, and he has these very long passages about his father and about his development, but when it came to his mother, there were two pages, and she was mixed-race woman who, quote-unquote, could pass for white. And it, I think that the book, or the genesis of the book, really, for me, began with people I didn't want to be forgotten. I was the kid who always wrote information on the back of photographs, family photographs, um, because it was extremely important for me to have a sense of where people came from and also to give other people an idea of not being forgotten um, in a country that's really based on forgetfulness and the arrival myth always of we got there, but no one ever talks about how. Um, and as to your point about uh, blacks in Britain, um, the story converges for West Indian Americans in that often there was someone who was left behind, a child um, or a, a, a significant relative in order to move ahead. Um, moving ahead meant immigrating to London or New York. And I think that what I'm interested in trying to write next um, are some of those stories of people who were left in Barbados where my family's from or people um, who were left behind. Um, it's, it's important for me not to memorialize but to remember. I think that's what I was trying to do with this writing anyway. I think you succeed. I think it's, Thank you. No, it's brilliant. Um, I, yeah, when you talk about uh, your West Indian heritage, mm. um, my family is West African, and so we're uh, linked by that, mm. you know, colonial uh, empire thing. And you mentioned even the royal family and your, is it your mother or your grandmother's almost reverence towards royalty at some point, I think, which is something I've had mm. <laughs> a lot. I think any, any uh, immigrants from certain parts of the world will know Maybe not all, but I know, you know, my mother can't wait for this next royal wedding and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, how much of your writing do you think is informed by the fact that you are a black American, but you're not necessarily uh, of the African-American? You are an immigrant American, a black um, American. I think um, that's an interesting question, but I think that um, I didn't consciously identify um, as that, I sort of consciously identified as strange. So that's a different country altogether. 
And um, there's a wonderful Baldwin um, interview with James Baldwin, and this is a point where I really sort of identified with him, where the interviewer said, uh, Mr. Baldwin, you were born black, gay, impoverished. Um, did you feel that you um, had nothing? And he says, no, in fact, I thought I hit the jackpot. It was so outrageous. You couldn't go anywhere else. And so I feel that free in that, and I always felt free in that. Um, no matter how painful, I was always able to see the ways in which people were limited by their own um, choices that had been informed more by society and family than organically. Um, so I think it's that that allows me to write the way that I do and also encourages me to write the way that I do because I don't belong to either house. Mm. So you feel like you get to... Uh, well, you're, you're, sort of, you're always a sort of um, a stranger, mm. you know, and you're sort of trying to decipher information about the world. Um, writing is really ultimately a, a kind of under, attempt at understanding and attempt at alchemy and I'm sort of trying to understand these people. Mm. Uh, I noticed that you said characters a mm -hmm. few minutes ago when you were talking about the book. Do yes. you consider when you when you start writing about these, you know, some of them real people, some of them mm. imagined lives, you consider them characters? Well, um, something very funny happened when I was trying for five years to write about my mother and I truly wrote the same two pages over and over again for five years. Um, I had a very good friend, the man that I write about in Tristra Peak, and he said, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't write, it's not really your mother, maybe it's a character. And it did something so profound in terms of readjusting the moral equation in my head about writing uh, about that world, um, sort of like cylinders that just kind of clicked. And I, he was right that the distance necessary to write, let's say, fiction can be applied to nonfiction. And I was able to write about her very quickly after that. And using his, um, that encouragement, I was able to write the first part of this book very quickly. What was the first, as in, in the first? Yes. Did you write it? I was going to ask, like, what was the process? Um, the story of the, of the man and woman um, in the first section of the book maybe took eight weeks. Wow. Um, it's the longest piece in the book, um, but it was also the thing that I needed to write in order to make a book, because it's, if you go through it, um, you'll realize that everything that I mentioned in that piece happens in the book as it ha goes along, so every character in the book happens in the first, or is spoken of in the first section. And then after that, was did you? How was what was the process of arranging the book and putting it uh, together? Well, the, I wrote that section, and then I started to really sort of think about what would make a book. I, you know, there are amazing examples of um, texts that are fractured in that way, but whole because of the first section, um, sort of announcing what the book is. And I was looking back at things like. Um, Faulkner's Go, um, Go Down Moses. Um, I was looking at Joan Didion's The White Album. I was looking at pieces, books that had sort of been composed, um, almost a sort of mosaics, um, that had, had at center this one sort of brick that really held the other pieces together. So I 
it was necessary for me to write the first section, and then I started to do which, what writers or this writer really loathes, which is to go back to things I had written, because um, you've just educated yourself stupidly in public for about 20 years. <laughs> it's a nightmare. So um, the last piece in the book was the first thing that I wrote that in my own voice, I felt. And so I wrote the, first, the last piece when I was 30. And that man, again, was, um, I remember we sat in his car and he said, that's really your writing now. So he was very instrumental in, in me becoming the person you're so nice to today. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and at what point, I mean, the title, I haven't even mentioned the title, but White Girl is the title. I was, I've been reading it on my commutes in the morning and yeah. getting many a odd slash dirty slash confused look. That's um, so funny. There yeah. was a, um, you, you can just smile when they do that. Just smile. Yes. Yeah. Um, Lots of black women did ask me what I was reading, though, which is really <laughs> interesting. Um, um, make of that what you will. Oh, well, I think that one of the, I wasn't really sort of consciously going um, for the provocative, because there's always enough of that around. Um, I felt that the when I used to write and work in fashion, I was always sort of disturbed by this thing that I would see backstage at shows, which was that they always, you know, the handlers or um, dressers and so on would always refer to the models of color as the black girls. And they'd say, did you dress the black girl, whatever. And they never did it for any other race. And I was always sort of confused by that. And it was always something that stayed in the back of my head. And then I started to think about the ways in which black people in my neighborhood, if I brought a good friend home, the woman I wrote about, you know, they'd say, oh, he was with that white girl. Um, and I always thought, why is it a diminishment? And why can't it be something that is elevated? Um, and so the elevation really happens in my descriptions of um, gender-free white girls, let's put it that way. Because after writing about her, there was Truman Capote, who wrote about wanting to be a woman and so on. So there, there were ways in which I had really been writing the book for a long time, and I didn't realize that. So it's a kind of tribute to... Um, I would have said girls if Lena Dunham hadn't de de disgraced it. As a, so um, I just had to, I just had to, um, to really sort of skewer this idea of the diminutive. Yeah. No, ah, oh. it's interesting you said that. Just you can't believe she stole it. Never no. mind. <laughs> um, one thing again. Uh, obviously, the book first came out in 2014, mm -hmm. and so we've had a few years, and it's all right. Rub it in. Yeah. No, 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 just. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're very British. I'm teasing. Oh God. <laughs> so funny. I always feel, yeah, just not British. And then you hang out with an American and it's yes. like, God, waving my little Union Jack. <laughs> just constantly. Funny. I know. Um, but I wondered what, if there were any things you would have added. Because even mm. the, uh, so there's a section on Eminem, which, uh, White Noise, it's called. Yes. Um, brilliantly. And it's one of the shorter sections, but I really enjoyed it. And obviously Thank in the you. last couple You might have years, enjoyed it because it was short. No. I'm just uh, kidding. Why. Stop it. <laughs> I got you again. I should have had more wine. <laughs> it's fine. Yes. <laughs> but um, I, Eminem has been, you know, he's been quiet for a few years. And in the last mm. couple of years, uh, has come back. Yes. Uh, you know, being lauded as, uh, you know, speaking out against yes. Trump and all of this. And, I, and 
there are a few other little bits. Even the Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor who comes up in the book. Yes. Uh, uh, often, it's a great artist, yes. and I read this right after Quincy Jones's brilliant uh, oh, yeah. series of interviews. <laughs> I believed every word. Uh, me too. Yes. If you haven't read, after you read White Girls, the yeah. next thing you should read is Quincy Jones's two interviews. Uh, one with Vulture, one with GQ, I think. Mm-hmm. They are brilliant, yes. aren't they? I love them. And he's and he talks about Richard Pryor's queerness. And mm-hmm. and it's funny because people were so surprised when... Well, I saw online, people were like, oh my God, he's saying that Richard Pryor was like sucking dick. And I was like, that's been... Is that not a thing people knew? Well... Apparently not. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, <laughs> I think that what... Um, Quincy Jones was talking about um, had been a kind of open secret about um, Pryor's sexual fluidity. And I, what really sort of astonishes me about the entire dialogue is, you know, Richard Pryor's an artist. What, aren't we supposed to do different things and have different bodies and minds? Aren't artists allowed to do that anymore? Um, he was not a person who was particularly interested in the status quo. He hadn't grown up in the status quo, you grew up in a whorehouse. And so sexuality was something, not only that it was traded, but something that was very open to him. I feel um, that there was um, one of the great experiences of writing about him was really becoming friendly with Lily Tomlin and um, her, her wife, Jane Wagner. And this, the ways in which Pryor's feminism um, was also something that wasn't discussed um, necessarily. So I feel that the kind of sensational aspect of the Quincy Jones interview was trivializes um, to some degree Richard's um, kind of sweetness as a person and also his openness to experience. I think that's really what Quincy, you know, minus the salacious stuff, was maybe trying to talk about was that he was really sort of an open person. And, you know, I think we forget, I think in this sort of culture where sensationalism is sort of packaged or titillation is packaged, that artists beautifully can make their own personal rules about what they need or what is interesting to them or what they're exploring, really, that's the word. Don't we get to explore different kinds of stories? I think that that gets lost. So, you know, the sort of big deal about Marlon Brando and so on, well... It's not really a big deal. You know, these are people who are manifesting many, many different kinds of personalities at, in very different ways. Um, why wouldn't they have these experiences? Do you think that, um, I guess, the, the, the need for this sort of shock horror, salacious, is that something that you've seen expand over the years? Or do you think it's just sort of always been like this? I just think that we're, when it comes to art, people, Americans... Um, I can only speak as an American, but Americans uh, have always been puritanical um, about this idea of creation, even though there's there's very little respect um, for artists, particularly as they get older and their work gets deeper. There's very, the audience shrinks um, because of this idea of being impatient with history, I feel. And I also feel that one of the things that happens with um, art um, is that it's, I don't want to use a sort of tired word like disrespected, but it becomes trivialized. And so what they hold on to is the biographical as opposed to the textual. Um, what the person has done 
um, is of is of less importance than who they did. Yeah, so well put. Yeah. I think maybe in the book there's no, maybe no one more so than someone like Michael Jackson mm. who gets his uh, section. I think I'd, I'm not sure why, but just you just called it Michael, which mm. I found really. Not that it, 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 yeah, it got me a little bit. And mm. then you, you do uh, this beautiful, uh, but also quite painful going in, uh, talking about his life and his work and the videos. And I think, yeah, Michael Jackson maybe epitomizes that where we talk about yes. the biography. Well, we were talking about the biography before he even died. Well, also, um, there's, I mean, I think that, you know, he's, a, he's certainly a figure in the book because we, we live in a culture, blessedly, where kids because I'm ancient, I can say that, um, people of your generation and younger are having conversations now about self-definition and what they want to be called and what it, what it means to be self-determining um, in that way. And I feel that one of the things that is so heartbreaking about Jackson or Whitney Houston or whatever is that these are people who went to the ideal idealization through image as opposed to interiority. Um, the interiority was played out um, in the wrecking of their bodies, right? What they felt about themselves was acted out in public, whereas they were not encouraged as artists to really sort of speak in different ways about their many different personalities and experiences. So you have Michael acting out physically Right, um, and then you have Whitney acting out um, physically as well, but via the black church, um, via the conservatism of the black church, and Michael through the, via the conservatism of black patriarchy, and they were both wrecked by these institutions. Were there any? Um, but on a lighter note. On a <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm, sorry, I'm just in my in my yeah. now. Yeah, it's it's so painful and so sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, maybe on a lighter note, let me see. I was going to ask if there were any because the book, uh, he, so much is in here. So mm. many films, books, plays, critics, singers, rappers, all of these people in this fabric that perhaps can be summarised as pop culture mm. broadly. I was wondering if there were people who didn't make the book. If there were, if there were, yes, and they called me. They, really, they did. Oh, um, I, my dear, I love her very much, Tilda Swinton. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book called White Girls. She said, Am I in it? And I said, No. She said, Oh, darling. And so, um, because I had written about her in the New Yorker, um, so that was one great conversation. Great to write about. That was a fantastic um, conversation. Um, uh, um, an art dealer that I used to be close to in um, America asked if, if I was dedicating it to her. Um, so I just, clearly I like women with a lot of oomph. Um, yeah. You know, but those were the two examples of it. Those were the two that yeah. didn't, didn't make it in. Yeah. Um, one, one of the other things, by the way, I've just realized I didn't bring my watch. I left it downstairs. So someone should let me know when it's quarter to because I, I will mm. just talk forever. Ah, oh, that's so nice. Subtle. Yeah. Thank you. Hope you have nothing like scandalous on your phone. Um, I'm really bad tech tech. Ah, okay, that's fine. Thank you. Um, I was, 
And actually, this room uh, maybe doesn't epitomize that much, but you talk a lot in different ways about uh, being the black person in the room, one of the only mm. black people in the room, whether that's in the fashion world, you talk about it in publishing. Uh, there's a great line, I can't remember verbatim, but it talks about, you know, uh, publishing or we might. You might call those white people or something like that, which, mm. I, which I laughed and laughed and smiled. Um, and is that something you've gotten used to, I was wondering? Well, no. I mean, fortunately, not gotten used to because it's changed so much since I wrote um, that. And blessedly. Um Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, David Remnick, who's the editor of The New Yorker, has been very, very aware. Tina Brown, to her credit, was very, very aware of it when she was there. Um, and then David Remnick, even more so um, during his tenure, has made a real push to um, integrate the magazine. And that makes me extremely happy to have colleagues um, that we can sort of talk in this way that is um, very freeing, I think. Um, having been the only one there at a certain point, um, I didn't feel alienated, but I was very aware of trying to push um, more stories and, and different kinds of writers there. Um, it was not a hardship to me, but it's just great that it really has manifested itself at the magazine um, because it is New York. Yeah, mm -hmm. of course. And I know you mentioned if, uh, towards earlier, the beginning of our talk about your time in, fa in the fashion world. Uh -huh. And there's a great uh, chapter that's about Andre Leontali that talks about him with John Galliano going. And, and mm -hmm. I just think, I wondered how much fashion and how much your time working with clothes and with that sort of strange, this world where you talk about how um, there's, you know, lots of men and if they were men there, they were often black, they were black and they were gay a lot of the time mm. and how that's informed your writing and if that's something that you... You mean in the, um, in fashion? Mm, oh, um, um, I think that one of the things that was very, um, I really loved him and it was a love, sometimes what happens during if you're writing a profile of someone is that there's a great deal of transference or working with anyone else really is that there's a great deal of transference that happens and you have to be very aware of the of what's happening and I adored him and um, it was something that he felt very close to my my love for him um, because he had been sort of alienated in that culture um, there were a number of very few black gay men involved in that. And um, Michael Roberts, who's British, um, who had worked at the Tatler with Tina, 
was doing a lot of fashion for the New Yorker, Andre. Um, and then he was trying to help young people like Andre Walker and so on. Um, but one of the things that I found deeply moving about him was um, his interiority. I really wanted to figure out how to make a language that was representative of someone who had eat, um, eaten a lot in order to get where he needed to go. Um, and he, the emotional energy of his life and the relative isolation of it was something that I really wanted to convey. Um, and it was, it was done really, I think I, I wrote the piece really out of a kind of, um, the love one feels generally can be viewed as harsh. Um, but I think what was shocking to him and some other people was that I didn't let the transference happen this way. Um, I let him do it and then I didn't return it. Um, so I needed him to, I needed to love him, but I also had to go away and write it. And that's the kind of, that's the sad ruthlessness of, of writing and also the sad fact of collaboration is that you are not that person. And so it takes hopefully two people who are very strong about what's happening to, to realize that and to remain friends, but generally it fractures in some way if the other person can't see themselves as separate from me or whomever. So it's a real, the piece is a real sort of piece about doubling in a way. And you, doubling is something that comes up in the book, the idea of twins. You know, up. I never even realized that until my psychoanalyst brought that up. Um, <laughs> um, and he said, you, you write quite a bit about doubling. And I said, I do? That's why he gets paid the big bucks. And, um, <laughs> I notice it too. <laughs> yeah, I'll pay you. Take you to dinner. And, um, and um, um, I think that I, as a kid, felt very um, close to... Um, I started writing because I have four older sisters and I couldn't get a word in edgewise and so I started keeping a notebook of things that they said and um, answer replies if I could get it out in time um, but I often couldn't get it out so I would write it down and my mother um, who was an extraordinary person um, we lived in a we lived in a um, apartment building in Brooklyn, um, two-family apartment building in Brooklyn owned by this wonderful Jewish family, Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz, and I loved them so much. And it was the first time I ever saw tattoos from concentration camp um, on arms, and I really loved them. And I remember standing on the stairs with my mother. It's a long story back to your, answer your question. And she... Um, they asked what I wanted, to, Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be Jewish. <laughs> and, um, and my mother just sort of rolled her eyes, and she said, no, he wants to be a writer. And when I look back on that instance, and they gave, very kindly gave me a typewriter, and I started to type my things out, it's really actually still what my writing is, right? Is that I become this person, um, this character for this period of time, and then I go away to describe that experience, to describe what it means to be a person um, in a particular cultural moment or a culture. Um, so back to the question, which I've forgotten. 
Twins, Twins. Ah, um, <laughs> yes, I wanted to be them, right? I wanted to be Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz. I wanted to understand who they were. And I think it really hasn't changed much at all. So, My impulse is to become sort of the Stanislavski school of writing, you know, to become that person in order to understand them. It's what Deanne Arvis, one of my favorite artists, said that um, she doesn't, she doesn't um, rearrange the subject, she arranges, rearranges her shape to suit the subject. And that's the hard work of profile writing. Trying to find yourself. To shapeshift to, in order to be that person and then take away. It's beautiful. Okay, I'll ask just one more little question, and then we'll open up to the audience. Okay. Um, I was wondering if there was anyone you were reading who you who you loved, who, something you've read recently or seen. Perhaps. Well, I'm looking forward to reading you. Um, <laughs> um, I've been reading. Um, I've been rereading actually, um, Jean Rhys, um, because um, Carol Phillips has a novel coming out um, that is about Jean Rhys um, and her, I think, time in Paris. Um, I was I, I was rereading all of Proust again, but I had to stop because it was just he was driving me nuts. Um, <laughs> but I loved him, and I couldn't believe that at 22 or whatever I was when I first read it that I understood what he was writing. Um, he had an enormous influence on me in that you could write philosophy and fiction and social commentary all at once. Um, I'd argue you do that here. Yes, and I've been reading. I read quite a lot of poetry for um, to create mental space um, to reflect. Um, Elizabeth Hardwick, one of my favorite essays, I understand, used to read poetry before she started writing her writing day as well. It creates beautiful space in the head. Mm. Um, since we're in London, um, Thomas Hardy is important. Oh, I love Thomas Hardy. Um, His poetry um, novels. And I've been also particularly taken recently with, um, um, I know this is so corny, I'm such, it's a nerd thing, but I'm really sort of falling in love with John Donne for the first time. Um, finding metaphors to talk about lovers yeah. is um, metaphysical metaphors that are really sort of blowing my mind. So our work is, that's what's so great about writing is that you're really a reader yeah. and our work is never done because we'll never be able to catch up to all the wonderful things there are to read, but it's, it's such a pleasure to try. That's beautiful. Oh. I feel like I should have written that down. <laughs> On that beautiful note, I think I'll open it up to the audience if anyone had any questions. I think there's oh, a yes, microphone. Young, oh, um, there's one up here. Wait, I think there's a mic. I'm going to wait. Okay. Hello. I'm Hi. such a big fan, and that was so incredibly fascinating. Um, Thank you. I think something that I read recently that affected me personally and sort of intellectually was um, Kevin Corshi's essay called Toward a Theory of Black Quiet mm -hmm. and the way he talks about um, blackness and black resistance always kind of being configured as incredibly performative, incredibly expressive mm -hmm. and but how actually he, f he sees that as in, in moments of like intimacy and quiet and contemplation That's and writing. And wow. It reminded me of the essay you wrote in The New Yorker about the twins who didn't speak for the vast Gina majority Jennifer of their Gillen. lives. Yeah. Yes, and but um, I feel like you see resistance as like figured in the way humans relate to each other and yeah. the ways that like 
people who've been considered others create selves and also create others. And I was wondering, like, and also you, I see that kind of in, like, your Andre Leon Talley essay about the kind of incredible vulnerability and, like, shyness of this person, but also, like, the ways in which they feel they have to perform. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could... I've, I, I don't know, like, I think your work speaks to me so much because I feel like the idea of always having to perform something but always having something kind of underneath that is so important. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you talk a bit more about, like... I don't know how like quiet and contemplation but also performativity mm-hmm. and how that relates to like black identity if okay that, if that makes sense <laughs> lunch on me at Shiki's um, it's very interesting that you brought this up because I'm really trying to write an essay called the quiet in fiction I didn't know about Kevin's piece at all um, good I'll just quote him um, um, but one of the things that one of the things that I'm trying to understand when I write about someone as a reporter is how does this act of fame, how does this act of, I'm generally not interested in famous people. Um, as Dan Arbus said, she just, she used to go blank when she would get an assignment for someone to photograph someone who was famous because they're, their message is in their face already. I'm interested in people who are, haven't really reached that level so that the um, quiet is still there and the performative happens on stage and then they leave it on stage. So the writing that I'm interested in doing is has to do with people who have yet to sort of take it away from the lecture hall. Um, in terms of black subjects, um, Performing is often a defense against <laughs> criticism, and the criticism that you experience is not often just in words, but in someone else's behavior, right? So if you have Richard Pryor, and let's say, you know, you, I went to a restaurant with Richard Pryor, and he would notice that the waiter was sort of not paying attention to us. Let's say his performance would be about being rambunctious or making the waiter uncomfortable in some way. And that would be to protect himself really from the hurt that he felt. So I think that performing people of color, generally it's some incredible wound. Um, it starts there, as it does for most performers, it begins with a wound about not being seen in some way. But if you're black and targeted, you're seen in a negative way. So how to undo that negativity is something um, that you could spend your life trying to change people's minds, or you could change your mind about it and be like, fuck it. Uh, with any more? Oh, great. I was just going to oh, say... Oh, a young man over there? Where? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't see. I was going to say, it says that line, which I was just looking for, about uh, coloured, what coloured people have handled attention well. Right. And you talk about... Uh, it's an undoing. It's an undoing. It's an undoing. Yeah, you know. and I, I was, the, I underlined it, and then just was like, "What? Hmm. Yeah. yeah." And just sitting, thinking about that for a long time. It's hard to do. Mm. It's hard to handle. Yeah. Hi. So, when you were talking about uh, sort of identifying with your subject in terms of um, can you speak profile, of a little bit? I can't. Uh, when you were talking about identification and writing profiles. I was thinking about the show that you curated of Alice Neal. Oh yeah. And her paintings. Did you see it? Of, did you like it? Uh, I'm vigilated, so I saw it a lot. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and yes, I did like oh. it. Um, I love her so much. And some wonderful Victoria Miro people are here, I think. Yeah. So thank them. 
<laughs> so I was wondering, in that instance, where she's kind of um, painting portraits of people around Spanish Harlem, where she lived, yeah, etc. Um, how does that process of identification? Does that function in the same way for you, writing a profile as it does curating, or is there another entry point? Sort of, what's at stake for you there? It's um, that's a good question, and I think that nothing is really at stake for me. It's it's trying to find a language, a visual language, to best frame that artist, um, to give them a public view um, that is not that is unusual, um, that is not. Standard. So, taking Alice Alice's um, work from that period in her life, which was her entire life, of looking at people of color, um, and giving it that context and editing it to that, um, allowed and particularly young people to see that this conversation about who gets to speak for whom has been happening for many many decades. Um, my job, I felt, with that show in particular, was to say that empathy has to be backed up with some pretty amazing chops, right? So Tennessee Williams was not a woman, but he wrote gorgeously about the interior lives of women. He could do it because he was a supreme artist. Alice Neal could do it because she was a great artist. I think it has everything to do with how do we support this view? Um, we can say that we feel like, um, I don't know, some, some ridiculous Kardashian or whatever. Um, but what is it that we see? And also, how do we analyze it? And also, wh what kind of voice do we give to that identification? I think that Alice is a great person um, to think about because she came not from that context at all. And yet she saw not only the soul of the place, but the soul of herself. And that's the bridge, right? Is that you see not only who the people are, but yourself. So it's not portraits of people who look like Alice, but Alice is there in her respect, in her technique, in her dedication. And you've just got to have that talent to back it up. Um, if you have that, you can do anything, but you've got to have that grounding. And it's something that I try to teach my students, um, there's so little value put on anymore in terms of context and people learning their craft in, by reading, for instance. Um, Alice learned her craft through many, many years of deprivation and silence, um, critical silence, but she knew how to make a drawing and she knew what people looked like separate from herself. So it really begins with knowing who you are as an artist and what you have to work with and, you know, working on those skills. You know, she just never assumed anything when she looked at a person. That's an amazing gift in itself, to be naked to the subject and to be naked to yourself at the same time. It's like, you know, Arbus or someone like that where you can't account for that. That's just a spiritual practice, you know. Um, so I kind of fell in love with your book because of its careful and sort of sensitive treatment of categories used to divide the body, either individual or social. But what really got me is the kind of introduction of a sort of 
universal in a sense in the form of the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, in the form of what? The mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're all in the end a series of mouths. And I wonder, um, you know, whether that's something that you find has this sort of like, you know, cost equality, uh, whether it's something that can explode categories like that um, because it's a universal but it's not a universal in the form of an ideal you know it's got to do with flesh and sort of like I don't know the reality of the body um, so in terms of ethics I wonder whether well, that's a good, good, I think that's the word really is that you have to um, the ethos um, is something that was so important to me and I'm so moved that you would say that because um I just, I really can't really write exploitation um, pieces about people, and sometimes I've been criticized as though he writes assassination pieces and so on, but really what I'm trying to do is understand, it's very selfish, it's an amazing opportunity for me to understand who I am via someone else, um, and this energy um, that goes into making portraits where I'm, I'm giving as much of myself as I possibly can, which is a lot, in order to understand the challenge for the artist, the challenge for the person, the challenge for my mother. Um, what she taught me, and this is, goes a long way in terms of understanding the Me Too movement and so on, is just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it won't happen. Never think um, that the bad stuff won't happen to you. So in anticipation, try to be as empathetic to another person that shit has happened to, you know? Um, It's just putting yourself in their place. And so there has to be some level of respect. And I've, I've noticed this about my own character that if that doesn't happen, then I lose, I'm very angry, and then I sort of lose interest in the other person because they're really they're putting themselves first. It's not a connection. And so I think that one of the things that the book tries, and I hope, and I'm so glad that you feel that, is that there's a deep respect for everyone. Um, and I, the intensity of it is that I've loved all of these people. And... I'm grateful to them for helping me become myself, too. So thank you. Yeah, Uh, yeah, is there any others? Hi, thanks. That was really great. Um, I had a question that, like, it seems in the last few years there's been a number of essays in The New Yorker kind of Mm -hmm. talking about a crisis in criticism Mm -hmm. that people don't really know what the point (laughs) is. That's so great. Yeah, precisely. But that they don't really know what the point is in a digital age where everyone kind of has some kind of access to the public space and, and people kind of questioning what basically what the role of the critic is nowadays. And I think mm-hmm. in the last 50 years there's been a lot of kind of criticism of the critic's role, like the kind of universalism in which they speak, like the identity of who is speaking most of the time, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my question is, do you think that there's a crisis in criticism and what do you think the point what do you think the point of criticism is today? Um, I don't notice a crisis. I notice um that it's become much more varied in terms of um, stories and critical perspectives. I think that's very interesting. I think if there's a crisis in literature, it's when something's written badly. Um, The crisis is when we don't know stuff 
and we purport to know stuff. Um, it, this goes back to this um, idea of um, the homogeneous voice that I, I've been talking to my students about. And because we have a deeper respect for one another personally and politically, doesn't mean that we have to agree. Um, it's so important for us to um, engage critically with each other through respect for someone else's difference, but not to say, um, I can't criticize it um, because of X thing or Y thing. Um, I think that there's a really sort of bad turn toward that um, sort of empirical critical voice, that it's one thing. And the second part of your question was about people, I'm sorry, what was the second part? The second part was, I think, like, what do you think the point of it? Oh, what's the point of it? Yeah. Um, I don't, beats me. No, just kidding. Um, I think the point of it really is critics do something very valuable, which is that they, they're really translators of a particular person or cultural moment, and that acts as a kind of introduction and gets people to pay attention to something. So if you have some someone like Susan Sontag writing about camp, it gives voice to queerness in 1961. Um, or if you have um, the brilliant Elizabeth Hardwick writing about um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, um, it gives voice to him as a writer. Um, if you have uh, Janet, Janet Malcolm um, writing a critical study of psychoanalysis, it really helps people to understand what process is. Um, so I think the value of the critic really is as a translator um, and as a um, synthesizer of a lot of different kinds of information. That's why it's so important to read um, outside of your field and to read deeply in your field. Okay, we had one last question, I think. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, everyone, for this. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I was just wondering if you'd managed to see Angels in America um, either here or now it's transferred to Broadway and if you had any thoughts of this production or alternatively um, what a favorite theater piece you've seen recently might be. Um, one thing that was in London that I saw in Brooklyn that just completely wrecked me was a, um, a woman, an Irish actress in a play called People, Places, Things. Um, it was just one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. The play was okay, but it was really her. Um, I saw uh, Eva Von Hove, who has Network Up now, did an incredible production of Angels in America and because he got rid of all the guilt, G-I-L-T, um, <laughs> of, of the show, and it was so spare. And what he, and I can just weep thinking about it because I've lost so many friends um, to AIDS was um, he would just, instead of the angels and the wings and all of that stuff, he had an 8 millimeter film of Fire Island dunes, just the dunes. And it was just one of the most incredible things I've ever seen recently. Um, also, just to top it off, was um, Jessica Lang as Mary Tyrone. I think it started here. No, it didn't start here, but she had done it here. Um, but it was her, Mary Tyrone, um, in Long Day's Journey Into Night that made me see things about the O'Neill play that I hadn't seen before. And one of the ways that she did that was to use her voice. She played with her back to the audience most of the time. She's looking at the horizon. 
And the amazing moment that just gives me goose pimples is when James says, Mary, you have to forget the past. And the bitterness that came out of her mouth when she said, why? <laughs> um, it's the present and it's the future, too. Um, it just, those kinds of aesthetics just let you know that you're there for a reason to, to really describe this as beautifully as possible so people can just go. It's just... You know, we're fortunate that we can share all of this stuff. Thank you. Thank um, you. I think it's testament to the richness of white girls that a lot of the questions brought out things that we didn't even get a chance to touch on, whether that's uh, the HIV crisis in the 80s or Alice Neal or the role of the critic, all of those things mm -hmm. are touched on in the book. Um, thank you so much thank you for coming so and much. speaking with us and sharing so much. Uh, get the book. There's so much more that couldn't be covered, I think, if we were speaking for five hours, no matter how much I'd love to. Uh, thank you thanks, very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.